Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Hear now God's living word. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, that all will be pleasing in your presence, you who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. Imagine with me a professional basketball game in a huge stadium. You've got lights and cameras, it's broadcasting. Now, imagine someone comes along outside the stadium with a giant set of hedge clippers and takes them to all the wiring going into the building and cuts it. What do you think would happen? All the lights would go out, right? The broadcasting would stop. They'd lose internet connection. That's akin to water for me at times these days. They wouldn't be able to function, right? At least for a time until it was repaired. Mary Hinkle Shore, uh, writing on workingpreacher.com, which is a part of Luther Seminary, Uh, She lifts up this example to help us understand in our modern day context what Jesus is doing when he turns over the tables in the temple. Once he did that, he stopped the the temple from functioning probably for a few hours, maybe an afternoon. You see, the way it worked is people would travel from all over to the temple. And there, just before they'd enter the temple itself, outside, people would be, at least in this time, selling animals that they were ritually cleaned so that they could use them for sacrifices to come before God, have their sins forgiven for that time, and worship. It was an instrumental part of the process. So Jesus, by turning over this table, the temple can't work. They can't buy their sacrifices. And this is all being done right before or during Passover week. The busiest time, probably, of the temple in the whole year. So no doubt the people who are running the temple, the religious elite, are going to notice and take issue with this. Marcus Borg, in his book Jesus, helps us wrap our minds more around how controversial it is what Jesus is doing here and the social justice that he was fighting for, the injustice that he was standing against through this action of defiance. Well, imagine with me that you are a peasant living in Judea. 
And if you're lucky enough, many would, but not everyone, you'd have a patch of land that you would grow food for your family for that year. Maybe you'd have a little bit extra to sell and make a bit of profit, but not much. Well, then the Roman occupation comes along, right? And the Romans appoint the upper class of the Jews, the religious elite, think Pharisees, Sadducees, along with the ruling class, think King Herod Antipas, that they will work, as, if you will, as a kind of emissary for Rome, on behalf of Rome, to collect taxes from the people, to hold them in line. And if the people ever get too feisty and revolt, big or small, they have Pontius Pilate and the Roman army or garrison there in Jerusalem they can call on to quell any revolts. Okay? But these taxes, they were significant. And these people who were near the poverty line, now they've fallen below it because of these taxes. They are hurting. So here they come in Passover week, and they're coming to the temple to worship. They don't have a lot. And now the very people who are in bed with the Romans, they have taken, as Borg says, the Jewish temple, this symbol of hope, and turned it into a symbol, a symbol of oppression. Because it's their hideout. It's where they're operating out of. And now you come, you don't have a lot, and you get there, and the same people who are fleecing you with taxes and getting their cut and everything, now they're trying to, to make a profit off of selling you these animals just so that you can worship. Do you see the injustice of it? Jesus is upset. He is filled with righteous indignation. Is this the Jesus who's dressed in pastel colors, holding a smiling lamb, and uh, you know, very gentle that we see in the children's Bibles? Is that the Jesus in this passage? I don't think so, right? This is angry Jesus. And he's here to turn over a few tables. He, he is not happy, the scripture clearly indicates, with the selling of these animals in the temple. But more broadly, as Borg says, he's also not happy with the people who in some kind of way are dubiously getting profits out of this and are running this whole thing and are oppressing the poor in the midst of it so that they can have more and the people have less. Jesus isn't intent, I think, I think it's very clear. Jesus knows that by turning over a few tables, probably with the assistance of his disciples, he's not going to overnight change this issue, right? But he's making a statement. He's saying this is wrong. And then by mentioning his resurrection, when the powers that be challenge him, they say, by what sign do you do this? He says, basically, they don't understand it in, in that time, but it's a kind of prophecy of the future. A day is coming when it's going to be different. It is coming. Jesus sets for us an example that we are called not only to be concerned with our personal relationship with God, but also are called as an outflow of our faith to engage in social justice. Now when I say social justice, that means an issue in our world that is more complex than one person. There's many variables and it indeed can seem daunting. But it's being called for us to band together as the body of Christ and as a united front with the Holy Spirit empowering us for us to be filled with that good kind of righteous indignation Jesus had at the evils of the world and then to say this is not right and it needs to change and we're going to engage in the long arduous process of seeing that it does change in God's timing. Tom Walker in our Sermon Shapers group raised an excellent question after he heard the passage and in the midst of our discussion this past Wednesday. He said, what tables do we need to overturn as an outflow of our faith here in Rockford today? 
What tables is God calling us to overturn today? One might be sex trafficking. This is a major issue in Rockford. Adam Kinzinger, our congressman, uh, said about a year ago that Rockford was second in the state for sex trafficking and tenth in the country. A lot of that is because of our close proximity to so many other bigger towns. And we're right there smack dab in the middle. So a lot of sex trafficking flows in and through our town, regrettably. Same thing with the drug trade. When I say sex trafficking, this is broader than just prostitution. As uh, race, Rockford Alliance Against Sex Exploitation, run by Jennifer Cacciapaglia, a lawyer in town, uh, has said, there's a certain naivete that is just in American culture that many of the people who are involved in prostitution have willingly gotten into it just to make some money and may the consequences be upon their head. And then we kind of shame them uh, who are being bought and sold. But it's just not accurate. The vast, vast majority of people who are in the sex trade are actual sex slaves. They have been forced into it, or if severe poverty forced them to get into it of their own volition, now they can't get out. And if they try to resist those who control them, they are hunted down, beaten, and perhaps even killed. They are property in all senses of the word. It is a terrible evil, and it's happening in our town. As Jennifer said, wherever there is a hotel and an abandoned building and the internet, there is sex trafficking. And the internet is what has made this so much worse in the last 10 or 15 years as well. It's, it's caused it to grow and be an even bigger issue than it was years ago in our country. There are solutions to this problem. Real practical steps that we could take both in our nation and here in our own town. One is to create at the federal level, it would have to be federally funded and managed or some kind of overarching organization that does not yet exist, to create a network of safe houses around the country so that you know, it can be women or men who are in the sex trade, but mostly it is women, uh, that when they are rescued from their sex traffickers, they can be moved several states away to a safe house. And vice versa, someone who's rescued in that state can be moved to Illinois. The problem is if you move them to a safe house, especially in the same town or even the same state, those who are trafficking them will hunt them down statistically, that is a much higher chance of happening. So they need to be moved somewhere else. They need counseling. They need, you know, this whole process. Another, so can we talk to our legislators to start to have something like that built? Another example is Rockford needs to have a specialized police force dedicated just to sex trafficking to stop it. Such a police force did exist, Jennifer shared with our group, uh, about a year or so ago, but it lost funding because our town is in debt. And this is a consequence. We have limited funding to go around. We still have our drug, our drug unit uh, that focuses on stopping drugs in Rockford, but the sex trafficking unit has lost funding. This is an important step to cutting demand, to cutting uh, the people who are demanding these services and going after them. Can we speak with our legislators here in town, our aldermen, our politicians, and say, we need funding for that unit. This is important to us. We want to see this end in our town. Another step is speaking with school boards and school administrators. The average age, and this is so hard to say this, it's, it's terrible. The average age that traffickers capture people and pull them into the sex trade is 12 to 14 years old. And they are, they are here in our schools doing this, in the school events. It's awful. 
It's, it, we, how can we as a community, Jennifer challenges us, speak to our school boards and have better, well-defined policies and procedures to watch out for predators? To have counselors in schools be able to identify, especially young girls or boys, who come out of very broken families and are exhibiting measurable signs that they are at high risk to be um, controlled by a sex trafficker. There's real things that can be done for counselors to spot that, steps to be implemented to prevent it from happening. But much of that does not exist as of yet in many American schools, not just in our town. And the final step related to all of it is public education. People just don't know. We think that this is a, a small underground issue happening on 7th Street, but it's not. It's around us. In our town, it's a major issue. And because it, it, America, not just our town, but so many people in our country don't know that this is a major problem and it's grown because of the internet, then there's not funding. The people's voice isn't heard. And then politicians don't allocate resources to stop this kind of evil from happening in our world. Whenever I, you know, think about matters of social justice or evils in our society that must be changed, I feel dismayed. I feel hopeless. What can I do? And that's where uh, a book by Bethany H. Hoang called Deepening the Soul for Justice just spoke so, so close to my heart and gave me real practical steps that we as a church can follow, the, the body of Christ can follow, and to help us as individuals to realize how we can stay in this long, arduous task of, of seeking social reform. Well, uh, Hoang is a part of an international ministry. It's called International Justice Mission, or IJM. It was started in 1997 by a single lawyer in Washington, D.C., and they have 17 offices around the, the globe now, many of them in very impoverished countries, and their mission is to stop slavery. Much of their work is to stop sex trafficking or sex slavery. They also, there are also people who are not in the sex trade but are slaves who are being exploited for their labor. So both of them they're going after, but the vast majority of their work is against sex trafficking. And Hoang, when she started out with IJM, said she felt like all she could do was pray. The issue was so massive. Where does she even begin? And her colleagues and the director spoke with her and said, you have to have a daily practice of prayer, and especially Sabbath. The two go hand in hand. Because when you engage in a regular habit of prayer and Sabbath, you will slowly come to know the heart of the God of justice. And then when you look upon the evils of this world, you will see it more intently through the perspective of God, and you'll also see new possibilities emerge as a result of it. She writes to this end, When we seek justice without first and throughout seeking the God of justice, we risk passion without roots, and passion without roots cannot be sustained. Burnout is inevitable. When we pray and have Sabbath, the God of justice also gives us strength through the empowerment of the Spirit to stay in that long, arduous work. She also reminds us that we are a part of the body of Christ. No one individual here is called to end some kind of giant social evil that burdens our hearts. Rather, we are to band together as the body of Christ and leverage the full breadth of our gifts to change the social evils of our times. And not even just this congregation but to band together with multiple congregations throughout the United Methodist Connection, maybe even across denominational lines, the more that we can group and organize, the more of a voice we can have to interact 
with the politicians and powers that be of our times to lead to social change. She, Hoang quotes uh, Nobel laureate Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who has witnessed much suffering in his time, uh, I believe in Russia, and Solzhenitsyn uh, writes about how there's a dynamic in human nature uh, called the two tragedies. He says there's tragedies that we personally experience and are all around and are like, we have direct experience with or we see on a regular basis. These bother us. We want to do something about it. But then there's the tragedy that's far away or it's removed from us or hidden from us. And, and he says it doesn't matter the scale. It could be a tragedy of millions of people dying. But there is a way in which if we have no direct experience with it and we really don't see it, but we're kind of just loosely aware of it, we can trivialize it. We can say, oh, you know, I, I have more important things to focus on. Or just, just move on, just kind of not focus on it adequately and really be moved to that place of righteous indignation that Jesus felt. So friends, for all of us, you know, is, are there evils of this world we're trivializing, we're turning away from, maybe even just subconsciously? Are there a way in which we can more intently look at the evil of our times and feel that calling to do something about it? And then finally, Hoang writes that when we choose despair, we are making a choice to move away from hope. She writes to that end, as we choose to face grave darkness in our broken world, one of the best ways to combat our own pendulum swings between apathy on the one hand and despair on the other is to also intentionally choose hope. <clears throat> hope can be impotently naive and moonless when pursued as nothing more than a sentimental wish. But when hope is grounded in the reality of who God is and the reality of how God works in our world, it becomes a source of great power in the face of even the darkest circumstances. I wish to share with all of you a brief story about a young woman named Suhana, whom IGM rescued from sex traffickers, despite all odds. Well, Suhana, uh, she, IGM came across her. She was one of the many young women in the country they were serving, probably somewhere in the Middle East or India. She doesn't name specifically in her book for confidentiality. Uh, but they rescue her out of the hands of sex traffickers in tandem with police raiding a brothel. So they think Suhana's well. They move her to a safe house. She goes through counseling, etc. She starts to date this young man. Well, lo and behold, he had been sex trafficked years ago but had gotten out of it. But the people who had sex trafficked him still had ties to him. They discovered Suhana by way of him over time. And they coerced him to sell her back into the sex trade. The sex traffickers got their hands on her and moved her to a different town miles away, millions of people in the town. Police spoke to IJM and said, she's lost forever, she is essentially dead, do not try to even look for her, you'll never find her. But IJM did not give up. This is a Christian organization. Um, they banded together in prayer throughout all their branches. Emails went out to pray to find Suhana. A team of people went to this other city to look for her. Uh, with Hoang as a part of that group. And they found her. Despite all odds, they found her. But they did not rescue her right away from the new sex traffickers who were managing her. Uh, they carefully observed her with the police for many days and set in place a series of factors to ensure that what happened to her would not repeat. They eventually, in time, rescued her, pulled her out of the sex trade, and gave her a new life. 
and she spoke this uh, sometime after her rescue. IJM didn't give up on me. They searched for me and found me. I finally felt what I used to only dream about, that God sent these people and brought me out of the hell I was in to a good place. I know this. I don't need to run anymore. This time the people who did this to me aren't going to win. Love is. Because of that, I know I will make it. Come with me now back to the passage of John 2. Jesus is challenged by the religious elite, by what sign do you do this? And what does he say? Destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus mentions the resurrection and indeed points to Easter morning when they ask him, by what sign do you do this? Why? Maybe because in the resurrection, the impossible is made possible. It reminds us that our God is a God who is able to make a way through no way despite all the odds. There is hope on Easter morning. Friends, when we look at these complex social issues, it is so easy for our logical brains to immediately kick in and say, there's no way, it's pointless. Your time is better spent somewhere else. But that's where we remember that the God of the universe partners with us in this work. That Easter morning is real. The resurrection happened. The forces of sin and death were conquered by Jesus. And that same Holy Spirit that did that work is within us. That if we open our hearts like that lawyer did in 1997, amazing possibilities can happen that we can't even see. That's what's hard about social justice. You can't see the whole road. But God wants us to go down it. Certainly, as Hoeing says, God could do the work. But God wants us to do it because that pleases God. It helps us grow. It helps other human beings see us at work in the midst of it and be inspired, the Holy Spirit at work. Friends, as we think about where we are being called, what social justice issues we need to confront as the body of Christ, let us remember the hope of Easter morning, the power of Christ's resurrection, and in that power be willing to turn over a few tables in the name of God's justice. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.